When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Chapter 11 He had reached his hotel. He crossed the hall with its mounds of reddish chairs and sofas, its spike-leaved, withered-looking plants. He got his key off the hook. The young lady handed him some letters. He went upstairs. He saw her most often at Burton, in the late summer, when he stayed there for a week or fortnight even, as people did in those days. First, on top of some hill there she would stand, hands clapped to her hair, her cloak blowing out, pointing, crying to them, she saw the severn beneath, or in a wood, making the kettle boil, very ineffective with her fingers, the smoke curtsying, blowing in their faces, her little pink face showing through, begging water from an old woman in a cottage who came to the door to watch them go. They walked always, the others drove. She was bored driving, disliked all animals, except that dog. They tramped miles along roads. She would break off to get her bearings, pilot him back across country, and all the time they argued, discussed poetry, discussed people, discussed politics. She was a radical then never noticing a thing except when she stopped, cried out at a view or a tree, and made him look with her. And so on again, through stubble fields, she walking ahead with a flower for her aunt, never tired of walking for all her delicacy, to drop down on Burton in the dusk. Then, after dinner, Old Breitkopf would open the piano and sing without any voice, and they would lie sunk in armchairs, trying not to laugh, but always breaking down and laughing, laughing, laughing at nothing. Breitkopf was supposed not to see, and then in the morning, flirting up and down like a wagtail in front of the house. Oh, it was a letter from her. This blue envelope, that was her hand, and he would have to read it. Here was another of those meetings, bound to be painful. To read her letter needed the devil of an effort. How heavenly it was to see him, she must tell him that. That was all. But it upset him. It annoyed him. He wished she hadn't written it. Coming on top of his thoughts, it was like a nudge in the ribs— 
Why couldn't she let him be? After all, she had married Dalloway and lived with him in perfect happiness all these years. These hotels are not consoling places. Far from it. Any number of people had hung up their hats on those pegs. Even the flies, if you thought of it, had settled on other people's noses. As for the cleanliness which hit him in the face, it wasn't cleanliness so much as barrenness, frigidity, a thing that had to be. Some arid matron made her rounds at dawn, sniffing, peering, causing blue-nosed maids to scour, for all the world as if the next visitor were a joint of meat to be served on a perfectly clean platter. For sleep, one bed. For sitting in, one armchair. For cleaning one's teeth and shaving one's chin, one tumbler, one looking-glass. Books, letters, dressing-gown, slipped about on the impersonality of the horsehair like incongruous impertinences. And it was Clarissa's letter that made him see all this. Heavenly to see you, she must say so. He folded the paper, pushed it away. Nothing would induce him to read it again. To get that letter to him by six o'clock, she must have sat down and written it directly he left her, stamped it, sent somebody to the post. It was, as people say, very like her. She was upset by his visit. She had felt a great deal, had for a moment, when she kissed his hand, regretted, envied him even, remembered, possibly, for he saw her look it, something he had said, how they would change the world if she married him, perhaps. Whereas, it was this. It was middle age. It was mediocrity. Then forced herself, with her indomitable vitality, to put all that aside, there being in her a thread of life which for toughness, endurance, power to overcome obstacles, and carry her triumphantly through, he had never known the like of. Yes, but there would come a reaction directly he left the room. She would be frightfully sorry for him. She would think what in the world she could do to give him pleasure, short always of the one thing, and he could see her, with the tears running down her cheeks, going to her writing-table and dashing off that one line which he was to find greeting him, heavenly to see you, and she meant it. Peter Walsh had now unlaced his boots. But it would not have been a success, their marriage. The other thing, after all, came so much more naturally. It was odd. It was true. Lots of people felt it. Peter Walsh, who had done just respectably, filled the usual posts adequately, was liked, but thought a little cranky, gave himself airs. It was odd that he should have had, especially now that his hair was gray, a contented look, a look of having reserves. It was this that made him attractive to women who liked the sense that he was not altogether manly. There was something unusual about him, or something behind him, 
It might be that he was bookish, never came to see you without taking up the book on the table. He was now reading, with his bootlaces trailing on the floor. Or that he was a gentleman, which showed itself in the way he knocked the ashes out of his pipe, and in his manners, of course, to women. For it was very charming and quite ridiculous how easily some girl without a grain of sense could twist him round her finger. But at her own risk. That is to say, though he might be ever so easy, and indeed with his gaiety and good breeding fascinating to be with, it was only up to a point. She said something. No, no, he saw through that. He wouldn't stand that. No, no. Then he could shout and rock and hold his sides together over some joke with men. He was the best judge of cooking in India. He was a man, but not the sort of man one had to respect, which was a mercy, not like Major Simmons, for instance, not in the least like that, Daisy thought, when, in spite of her two small children, she used to compare them. He pulled off his boots. He emptied his pockets. Out came with his pocket knife a snapshot of Daisy on the veranda, Daisy all in white, with a fox terrier on her knee, very charming, very dark, the best he had ever seen of her. It did come, after all, so naturally, so much more naturally than Clarissa. No fuss, no bother, no finicking and fidgeting, all plain sailing, and the dark, adorably pretty girl on the veranda exclaimed, he could hear her, of course, of course she would give him everything, she cried. She had no sense of discretion. Everything he wanted, she cried, running to meet him, whoever might be looking. And she was only twenty-four, and she had two children. Well, well. Well, indeed, he had got himself into a mess at his age. And it came over him when he woke in the night pretty forcibly. Suppose they did marry. For him it would be all very well. But what about her? Mrs. Burgess, a good sort and no chatterbox, in whom he had confided, thought this absence of his in England, ostensibly to see lawyers, might serve to make Daisy reconsider, think what it meant. It was a question of her position, Mrs. Burgess said, the social barrier, giving up her children. She'd be a widow with a past one of these days, draggling about in the suburbs, or, more likely, indiscriminate. You know, she said, what such women get like with too much paint. But Peter Walsh pooh-poohed all that. He didn't mean to die yet. Anyhow, she must settle for herself. Judge for herself, he thought, padding about the room in his socks, smoothing out his dress shirt, for he might go to Clarissa's party, or he might go to one of the halls, or he might settle in and read an absorbing book written by a man he used to know at Oxford. And if he did retire, that's what he'd do, write books. He would go to Oxford and poke about in the Bodleian, 
Vainly, the dark, adorably pretty girl ran to the end of the terrace, vainly waved her hand, vainly cried she didn't care a straw what people said. There he was, the man she thought the world of, the perfect gentleman, the fascinating, the distinguished, and his age made not the least difference to her, padding about a room in a hotel in Bloomsbury, shaving, washing, continuing as he took up cans, put down razors, to poke about in the Bodleian, and get at the truth about one or two little matters that interested him. And he would have a chat with whoever it might be, and so come to disregard more and more precise hours for lunch, and miss engagements, and when Daisy asked him, as she would, for a kiss, a scene, fail to come up to the scratch, though he was genuinely devoted to her. In short, it might be happier, as Mrs. Burgess said, that she should forget him, or merely remember him as he was in August 1922, like a figure standing at the crossroads at dusk, which grows more and more remote as the dog-cart spins away, carrying her securely fastened to the back seat, though her arms are outstretched, and as she sees the figure dwindle and disappear, still she cries out how she would do anything in the world, anything, anything, anything. He never knew what people thought. It became more and more difficult for him to concentrate. He became absorbed. He became busied with his own concerns. Now surly, now gay, dependent on women, absent-minded, moody, less and less able, so he thought as he shaved, to understand why Clarissa couldn't simply find them a lodging and be nice to Daisy, introduce her, and then he could just... just do what? Just haunt and hover? He was at the moment actually engaged in sorting out various keys, papers, swoop and taste, be alone, in short, sufficient to himself, and yet nobody, of course, was more dependent upon others, he buttoned his waistcoat. It had been his undoing. He could not keep out of smoking rooms, liked colonels, liked golf, liked bridge, and above all, women's society, and the fineness of their companionship, and their faithfulness, and audacity, and greatness in loving, which, though it had its drawbacks, seemed to him, and the dark, adorably pretty face was on top of the envelopes, so wholly admirable, so splendid a flower to grow on the crest of human life, and yet he could not come up to the scratch, being always apt to see round things, Clarissa had sapped something in him permanently, and to tire very easily of mute devotion and to want variety in love, though it would make him furious if Daisy loved anybody else, furious, for he was jealous, uncontrollably jealous by temperament. He suffered tortures, but where was his knife, his watch, his seals, his note-case, and Clarissa's letter, which he would not read again, but liked to think of, and Daisy's photograph, 
And now for dinner. They were eating, sitting at little tables, round vases, dressed or not dressed, with their shawls and bags laid beside them, with their air of false composure, for they were not used to so many courses at dinner, and confidence, for they were able to pay for it, and strain, for they had been running about London all day shopping, sightseeing, and their natural curiosity, for they looked round and up as the nice-looking gentlemen in horn-rimmed spectacles came in, and their good nature, for they would have been glad to do any little service, such as lend a timetable or impart useful information, and their desire, pulsing in them, tugging at them subterraneously, somehow to establish connections, if it were only a birthplace, Liverpool, for example, in common, or friends of the same name, with their furtive glances, odd silences, and sudden withdrawals into family jocularity and isolation. There they sat eating dinner when Mr. Walsh came in and took his seat at a little table by the curtain. It was not that he said anything, for being solitary he could only address himself to the waiter. It was his way of looking at the menu, of pointing his forefinger to a particular wine, of hitching himself up to the table, of addressing himself seriously, not gluttonously, to dinner, that won him their respect, which, having to remain unexpressed for the greater part of the meal, flared up at the table where the Morrises sat when Mr. Walsh was heard to say at the end of the meal, Bartlett Pears. Why he should have spoken so moderately yet firmly, with the air of a disciplinarian well within his rights which are founded upon justice, neither young Charles Morris nor old Charles, neither Miss Elaine nor Mrs. Morris knew. But when he said, Bartlett Pears, sitting alone at his table, they felt that he counted on their support in some lawful demand, was champion of a cause which immediately became their own, so that their eyes met his eyes sympathetically, and when they all reached the smoking-room simultaneously, a little talk between them became inevitable. It was not very profound, only to the effect that London was crowded, had changed in thirty years, that Mr. Morris preferred Liverpool, that Mrs. Morris had been to the Westminster Flower Show, and that they had all seen the Prince of Wales. Yet, thought Peter Walsh, no family in the world can compare with the Morrises, none whatever, and their relations to each other are perfect, and they don't care a hang for the upper classes, and they like what they like, and Elaine is training for the family business, and the boy has won a scholarship at Leeds, and the old lady, who is about his own age, has three more children at home, and they have two motor-cars, but Mr. Morris still mends the boots on Sunday. It is superb, it is absolutely superb, thought Peter Walsh, swaying a little backwards and forwards with his liquor-glass in his hand among the hairy red chairs and ashtrays, feeling very well pleased with himself, for the Morrises liked him. 
Yes, they liked a man who said, Bartlett pears. They liked him, he felt. He would go to Clarissa's party. The Morrises moved off, but they would meet again. He would go to Clarissa's party because he wanted to ask Richard what they were doing in India, the conservative duffers, and what's being acted, and music, oh yes, and mere gossip. For this is the truth about our soul, he thought, our self, who, fish-like, inhabits deep seas and plies among obscurities threading her way between the bowls of giant weeds, over sun-flickered spaces, and on and on into gloom, cold, deep, inscrutable. Suddenly she shoots to the surface and sports on the wind-wrinkled waves, that is, has a positive need to brush, scrape, kindle herself, gossiping. What did the government mean, Richard Dalloway would know, to do about India? Since it was a very hot night and the paper boys went by with placards proclaiming in huge red letters that there was a heat wave, wickered chairs were placed on the hotel steps, and there, sipping, smoking, detached gentlemen sat. Peter Walsh sat there. One might fancy that day, the London day, was just beginning— like a woman who had slipped off her print dress and white apron to array herself in blue and pearls, the day changed, put off stuff, took gauze, changed to evening, and with the same sigh of exhilaration that a woman breathes, tumbling petticoats on the floor, it too shed dust, heat, color, the traffic thinned, Motor cars, tinkling, darting, succeeded the lumber of vans, and here and there among the thick foliage of the squares, an intense light hung. Lucky Land Casino, asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I resign, the evening seemed to say, as it paled and faded above the battlements and prominences molded, pointed, of hotel, flat, and block of shops, I fade. She was beginning. I disappear. But London would have none of it, and rushed her bayonets into the sky, pinioned her, constrained her to partnership in her revelry. For the great revolution of Mr. Willett's summertime had taken place since Peter Walsh's last visit to England, the prolonged evening was new to him. It was inspiriting, rather, for as the young people went by with their dispatch boxes, awfully glad to be free, proud, too, dumbly, of stepping this famous pavement, joy of a kind, cheap, tinsely, if you like, 
but all the same rapture flushed their faces. They dressed well, too, pink stockings, pretty shoes. They would now have two hours at the pictures. It sharpened, it refined them, the yellow-blue evening light, and on the leaves in the square shone lurid, livid. They looked as if dipped in seawater, the foliage of a submerged city. He was astonished by the beauty. It was encouraging, too, for where the returned Anglo-Indian sat by rights, he knew crowds of them, in the Oriental Club biliously summing up the ruin of the world, here was he, as young as ever, envying young people their summertime and the rest of it, and more than suspecting from the words of a girl, from a housemaid's laughter, intangible things you couldn't lay your hands on, that shift in the whole pyramidal accumulation which in his youth had seemed immovable. On top of them it had pressed, weighed them down, the women especially, like those flowers Clarissa's Aunt Helena used to press between sheets of gray blotting paper with Littre's dictionary on top, sitting under the lamp after dinner. She was dead now. He had heard of her, from Clarissa, losing the sight of one eye. It seemed so fitting, one of nature's masterpieces, that old Miss Perry should turn to glass. She would die like some bird in a frost gripping her perch. She belonged to a different age, but being so entire, so complete, would always stand up on the horizon, stone-white, eminent like a lighthouse marking some past stage on this adventurous, long, long voyage, this interminable. He felt for a copper to buy a paper and read about Surrey and Yorkshire. He had held out that copper millions of times. Surrey was all out once more. This interminable life. But cricket was no mere game. Cricket was important. He could never help reading about cricket. He read the scores in the stop press first, and then how it was a hot day, then about a murder case. Having done things millions of times enriched them, though it might be said to take the surface off. The past enriched, and experience, and having cared for one or two people, and so having acquired the power which the young lack of cutting short, doing what one likes, not caring a rap what people say, and coming and going without any very great expectations, he left his paper on the table and moved off, which, however, and he looked for his hat and coat, was not altogether true of him, not tonight, for here he was starting to go to a party, at his age, with the belief upon him that he was about to have an experience. But what? Beauty, anyhow. Not the crude beauty of the eye. It was not beauty pure and simple, Bedford Place leading into Russell Square. It was straightness and emptiness, of course, the symmetry of a corridor. But it was also windows lit up, a piano, a gramophone sounding, a sense of pleasure-making hidden but now and again emerging when, through the uncurtained window, 
the window left open, one saw parties sitting over tables, young people slowly circling, conversations between men and women, maids idly looking out, a strange comment theirs when work was done, stockings drying on top ledges, a parrot, a few plants, absorbing, mysterious, of infinite richness, this life. And in the large square where the cabs shot and swerved so quick, there were loitering couples, dallying, embracing, shrunk up under the shower of a tree that was moving, so silent, so absorbed, that one passed discreetly, timidly, as if in the presence of some sacred ceremony to interrupt which would have been impious. That was interesting. And so, on into the flare and glare. His light overcoat blew open. He stepped with indescribable idiosyncrasy, leant a little forward, tripped, with his hands behind his back and his eyes still a little hawk-like, he tripped through London towards Westminster, observing. Was everybody dining out then? Doors were being opened here by a footman to let issue a high-stepping old dame in buckled shoes with three purple ostrich feathers in her hair. Doors were being opened for ladies wrapped like mummies in shawls with bright flowers on them, ladies with bare heads, and in respectable quarters with stucco pillars through small front gardens lightly swathed with combs in their hair, having run up to see the children, women came, men waited for them, with their coats blowing open, and the motor started. Everybody was going out. What with these doors being opened and the descent and the start, it seemed as if the whole of London were embarking in little boats moored to the bank, tossing on the waters, as if the whole place were floating off in carnival. And Whitehall was skated over, silver-beaten as it was, skated over by spiders, and there was a sense of midges round the arc lamps. It was so hot that people stood about talking, and here in Westminster was a retired judge, presumably, sitting four-square at his house-door dressed all in white. An Anglo-Indian, presumably. And here a shindy of brawling women, drunken women, here only a policeman and looming houses, high houses, domed houses, churches, parliaments, and the hoot of a steamer on the river— a hollow, misty cry. But it was her street, this, Clarissa's. Cabs were rushing round the corner, like water round the piers of a bridge, drawn together, it seemed to him, because they bore people going to her party, Clarissa's party. The cold stream of visual impressions failed him now, as if the eye were a cup that overflowed and let the rest run down its china walls unrecorded. The brain must wake now, the body must contract now, entering the house, the lighted house, where the door stood open, where the motor-cars were standing, and bright women descending, 
The soul must brave itself to endure. He opened the big blade of his pocket knife. Lucy came running full tilt downstairs, having just nipped into the drawing room to smooth a cover, to straighten a chair, to pause a moment and feel whoever came in must think how clean, how bright, how beautifully cared for, when they saw the beautiful silver, the brass fire irons, the new chair covers, and the curtains of yellow chintz. She appraised each, heard a roar of voices, people already coming up from dinner. She must fly. The prime minister was coming, Agnes said. So she had heard them say in the dining room, she said, coming in with a tray of glasses. Did it matter? Did it matter in the least, one prime minister more or less? It made no difference at this hour of the night to Mrs. Walker, among the plates, saucepans, colanders, frying pans, chicken and aspic, ice cream freezers, paired crusts of bread, lemons, soup tureens, and pudding basins which, however hard they washed up in the scullery, seemed to be all on top of her, on the kitchen table, on chairs, while the fire blared and roared, the electric lights glared, and still supper had to be laid. All she felt was one prime minister more or less made not a scrap of difference to Mrs. Walker. The ladies were going upstairs already, said Lucy. The ladies were going up, one by one, Mrs. Dalloway walking last, and almost always sending back some message to the kitchen, My love to Mrs. Walker. That was it one night. Next morning they would go over the dishes, the soup, the salmon, the salmon Mrs. Walker knew, as usual, underdone, for she always got nervous about the pudding and left it to Jenny. So it happened the salmon was always underdone. But some lady with fair hair and silver ornaments had said, Lucy said, about the entree, was it really made at home? But it was the salmon that bothered Mrs. Walker as she spun the plates round and round and pulled in dampers and pulled out dampers, and there came a burst of laughter from the dining room, a voice speaking, then another burst of laughter, the gentlemen enjoying themselves when the ladies had gone. The toque, said Lucy running in, Mr. Dalloway had sent for the toque from the emperor's cellars, the imperial toque. It was borne through the kitchen. Over her shoulder, Lucy reported how Miss Elizabeth looked quite lovely. She couldn't take her eyes off her, in her pink dress, wearing the necklace Mr. Dalloway had given her. Jenny must remember the dog, Miss Elizabeth's fox terrier, which, since it bit, had to be shut up and might, Elizabeth thought, want something. Jenny must remember the dog. But Jenny was not going upstairs with all those people about. There was a motor at the door already. There was a ring at the bell, and the gentleman still in the dining room, drinking toque. There, they were going upstairs. That was the first to come, and now they would come faster and faster so that Mrs. Parkinson, hired for parties, would leave the hall door ajar, and the hall would be full of gentlemen waiting. They stood waiting, sleeking down their hair, while the ladies took their cloaks off in the room along the passage, where Mrs. Barnett helped them, old Ellen Barnett, 
who had been with the family for forty years and came every summer to help the ladies and remembered mothers when they were girls and though very unassuming did shake hands said milady very respectfully yet had a humorous way with her looking at the young ladies and ever so tactfully helping lady lovejoy who had some trouble with her underbodice and they could not help feeling lady lovejoy and miss alice that some little privilege in the matter of brush and comb was awarded them having known mrs barnett thirty years milady mrs barnett supplied her young ladies did not use to rouge said lady lovejoy when they stayed at burton in the old days and miss alice didn't need rouge said mrs barnett looking at her fondly there mrs barnett would sit in the cloak-room patting down the furs smoothing out the spanish shawls tidying the dressing-table and knowing perfectly well in spite of the furs and the embroideries which were nice ladies which were not the dear old body said lady lovejoy mounting the stairs clarissa's old nurse and then lady lovejoy stiffened lady and miss lovejoy she said to mr wilkins hired for parties he had an admirable manner as he bent and straightened himself bent and straightened himself and announced with perfect impartiality lady and miss lovejoy sir john and lady needham miss weld mr walsh his manner was admirable his family life must be irreproachable except that it seemed impossible that a being with greenish lips and shaven cheeks could ever have blundered into the nuisance of children how delightful to see you said clarissa she said it to every one how delightful to see you she was at her worst effusive insincere it was a great mistake to have come he should have stayed at home and read his book thought peter walsh should have gone to a music hall he should have stayed at home for he knew no one oh dear it was going to be a failure a complete failure clarissa felt it in her bones as dear old lord lexham stood there apologizing for his wife who had caught cold at the buckingham palace garden party she could see peter out of the tail of her eye criticizing her there in that corner why after all did she do these things why seek pinnacles and stand drenched in fire might it consume her anyhow burn her to cinders better anything better brandish one's torch and hurl it to earth than taper and dwindle away like some ellie henderson it was extraordinary how peter put her into these states just by coming and standing in a corner he made her see herself exaggerate it was idiotic but why did he come then merely to criticize why always take never give why not risk one's one little point of view there he was wandering off and she must speak to him but she would not get the chance life was that humiliation renunciation what lord lexham was saying was that his wife would not wear her furs at the garden party because my dear you ladies are all alike lady lexham being seventy-five at least 
It was delicious how they petted each other, that old couple. She did like old Lord Lexham. She did think it mattered, her party, and it made her feel quite sick to know that it was all going wrong, all falling flat. Anything, any explosion, any horror was better than people wandering aimlessly, standing in a bunch at a corner like Ellie Henderson, not even caring to hold themselves upright. Gently, the yellow curtain with all the birds of paradise blew out, and it seemed as if there were a flight of wings into the room, right out, then sucked back, before the windows were open. Was it drafty? Ellie Henderson wondered. She was subject to chills, but it did not matter that she should come down sneezing tomorrow. It was the girls with their naked shoulders she thought of, being trained to think of others by an old father, an invalid, late vicar of Burton. But he was dead now, and her chills never went to her chest, never. It was the girls she thought of, the young girls with their bare shoulders, she herself having always been a wisp of a creature, with her thin hair and meager profile, though now, past fifty, there was beginning to shine through some mild beam, something purified into distinction by years of self-abnegation, but obscured again, perpetually, by her distressing gentility, her panic fear, which arose from three hundred pounds income, and her weaponless state. She could not earn a penny, and it made her timid, and more and more disqualified year by year to meet well-dressed people who did this sort of thing every night of the season, merely telling their maids, I'll wear so-and-so, whereas Ellie Henderson ran out nervously and bought cheap pink flowers, half a dozen, and then threw a shawl over her old black dress. For her invitation to Clarissa's party had come at the last moment— she was not quite happy about it. She had a sort of feeling that Clarissa had not meant to ask her this year. Why should she? There was no reason, really, except that they had always known each other. Indeed, they were cousins. But, naturally, they had rather drifted apart, Clarissa being so sought after. It was an event to her, going to a party— it was quite a treat just to see the lovely clothes. Wasn't that Elizabeth grown up, with her hair done in the fashionable way in the pink dress? Yet she could not be more than seventeen. She was very, very handsome. But girls, when they first came out, didn't seem to wear white as they used. She must remember everything to tell Edith. Girls wore straight frocks perfectly tight, with skirts well above the ankles. It was not becoming, she thought. So, with her weak eyesight, Ellie Henderson craned rather forward, and it wasn't so much she who minded not having anyone to talk to, she hardly knew anybody there, for she felt that they were all such interesting people to watch. Politicians, presumably, Richard Dalloway's friends. But it was Richard himself who felt that he could not let the poor creature go on standing there all the evening by herself.
End of chapter 11. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Experience the best in relaxation and entertainment with Saul Good Streaming at SaulGood.org. Our extensive library features hundreds of audiobooks, thousands of short stories, original podcasts, and popular sounds for sleep, meditation, and relaxation all ad-free. Whether you want to escape into a good book or fall asleep to your favorite ambient sound, we have something for everyone. Go to SaulGood.org to start streaming and discover your new go-to for entertainment and relaxation. That's S-O-L-G-O-O-D dot O-R-G.